Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, or look for us over on Facebook. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes, of course, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. You can also go right to nationalreview.com. Listen there, enjoy, share, leave reviews for Political Beats. Also, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help the show stay ad-free. Also, support our efforts on the program. We have entry level for supporting and voting privileges, mid-level for early access to new shows with higher audio quality, and then our upper-level best friends of all, exclusive content once a month, remastered episodes with song clips, new ones, and Spotify playlists for you. And our end of show choices in those uh, playlists, of course. Patreon.com slash political beats. Patreon.com slash political beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Not, not doing very good, Scott. I'm a little bit frustrated. I have to say I'm fed up with the lack of creative control on this podcast and I'm, I'm fed up at the fact that you don't allow me to sing on the show, uh, especially when I come up with really great ideas of things to sing. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be leaving uh, somewhere during the middle of this episode. But uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll probably join back up again before we're done. Yeah, we should work together in the future, maybe on tours and, and various projects for sure. You know, we, we could we could get, you know, a couple of ex guests back on the show and kind of come up with what we say, a super podcast. Maybe. It's an idea. Yeah. Jeff on Twitter, at Esoteric CD. And our guest on today's program is a returning guest. You'd go way back, way back to the Rolling Stones Part 2 episode to hear from the editor-in-chief of National Journal, nationaljournal.com. On Twitter, at DC DeFore, Jeff DeFore. Welcome back to Political Beats. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. I feel like I'm well prepared for this episode because... During COVID, I've worn a lot of flannel, and I can't remember when the last time is that I washed my hair. So I feel like a, a lot of kinship with Neil. Uh, I actually am wearing a flannel today. That was inadvertent, though, not 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 purposefully. But uh, I feel like I'm in on the spirit of the thing. Uh, Jeff, as I mentioned, editor-in-chief at, at National Journal. Take a few minutes. Tell us once again uh, what that means, what you do over there, how you got there. Well, I started my career at National Journal um, in a very different time in the infancy of internet publishing. Um, from there, I ping-ponged around to The Hill and then The Washington Examiner, and then I was out of politics doing uh, for a little while, doing, uh, doing a lot of restaurant coverage and, and food and drink stuff. And, and then back to National Journal in late 2015, right before Trump won his first primary. So um, my, my time at, at, at National Journal has coincided largely with, um, with the Trump era, so to speak. And Jeff joins us today for a first part of three parts. We've, this is the third three-parter, Jeff? Is that right? Let's okay. see, there was Dylan, there was Bowie, and this one makes three. This is three. third. All right. So our third three-parter, you've got to have a lengthy, lengthy resume and discography, and also one that makes an impact over a vast number of years to be worthy of a three-part episode. The artist today, 
uh, checks those boxes. This is part one of Neil Young. Jeff DeFore, we turn the floor back over to you. Tell us why you're here, why you love Neil Young, how you got into him, and why people should care about this music. So this is a long story. Um, broadly, I think rock aficionados like ourselves, you got Dylan, you got Springsteen, you got Neil, one, Neil Young, uh, and, and you can pick one. Uh, everybody has a favorite of those three. Mine is, mine's always been Neil. Um, he, he represents a lot of big moments for me kind of in my, in my musical coming of age. Uh, most notably, maybe when I was 13, my parents got me for my birthday a portable CD player. Um, I think it was a Sony Discman. You could take it on the bus to school. You could plug it into the stereo system at home. It was great. It was revolutionary. Um, anyway, when I got it, it presented me the choice of what CD to buy first. Um, and the first CD I ever bought was Neil Young's Live Rust. probably my favorite concert album i still have the disc i still listen to it um parenthetically i should maybe note here that my second disc ever purchased was roger waters's radio chaos so some of my choices were better than others <laughs> that is such a terrible album okay <laughs> so bad you hear radio waves in your head oh oh my god anyways but enough about and him. then um, one of not my first concert, but one of my first concerts. In fact, the first concert I was ever allowed to drive myself to um, was Neil on the Ragged Glory tour in 1991 at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. Why my parents ever allowed me to drive into downtown Hartford at age 17, I have no idea, but I'm glad they did.
Um, opening that tour were two bands I had never heard of at the time, Social Distortion and Sonic Youth. I could not have been more disinterested in those two bands, um, which I guess brings me to kind of the, my, my third point that I would make about Neil. Um, I, Jeff, I recall you saying in another episode something similar about being a completist on legacy bands and artists you love to the exclusion of a, not, a lot of new music when you were when you were younger. Yeah, um, I, I, I did the exact same thing. I would go to the CD shops and I would look for the European imported concert bootlegs of Neil Young, Pink Floyd, the Allman, Zeppelin, all these bands that I really loved, and I would drill down all the way on those. Meanwhile, I'm ignoring bands like Soundgarden and Social Distortion that are that that were more current. You know, I had never even heard of uh, I'd never even heard television or the Stooges or anything until I was probably 28. Um, and, and that's why. Um, and then lastly, in terms of how these how, how Neil Young keeps rearing its head, I kid you not, three days ago, um, my father-in-law is in the process of moving and downsizing. So he found a bunch of stuff that he sent us, thought we would like it. In that package, I kid you not, three days ago, was a souvenir set of Neil Young branded rolling papers. <laughs> what I'm going to do with them, I'm not quite sure, but I think I'm just going to keep display. them on the bookshelf as yes. a keepsake. Yes. <laughs> so, and why he's significant, I think, Neil's one of those artists that has such a wide appeal and such a wide family tree of bands he's influenced. Um, obviously, you, there's grunge and Pearl Jam, but look, underground punk, jam bands, singer-songwriters, alt-country, folkies, they can all claim him as, a, as an influence. There's, there's something for everybody there, and you can't name that many more artists who have that broad of an influence. <laughs> artist that I got into from actually my brother and it's hard hard to believe it but like when I was a kid growing up maybe because I was more of a, a VH1 MTV you know music video guy Neil Young was nowheresville during the 1980s this is something we'll, we'll talk about when we get to part three of this show uh, he was just basically a commercial vacuum back then mostly by choice but what happened when I was nine years old um, came out with an album that took the world by storm. And all of a sudden, me and my brother went to the store, 
and decided we were going to be rocking in the free world because freedom was my introduction to Neil Young. And of course, we all love that album. Uh, I love that song. Uh, I think I didn't know what to do about like, you know, crime in the city or, you know, where Neil was singing or uh, the one where he's in Broadway where he's like, give me that crack. Uh, <laughs> we're a little too young to understand what Neil was going on about and some of the uh, social commentary of those tunes. Um, but then the next thing that my brother did, and it was a couple of years later, is that he went and he bought Rust Never Sleeps. And that's when I was truly floored. Look out, mama, there's a white boat coming up the river With a big red beacon and a flag and a man on the rail I think you better call John Cause it don't look like they're here to deliver A man And it's less than got it because he wanted to hear um you know out of the blue you know uh hey hey my 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 hey hey i can never remember which one's the acoustic and which one's the electric <laughs> uh you know it's when you reverse the order of them all the time in your mind um but i heard a song called Powderfinger, which floored me and I don't want to talk about it now because this is not that part of his career that we're going to be discussing in this first episode. But I think that that is, if not his best song, then like one of the top two or three of them. And it was a lyric that even as a young kid, I might have only been 12 or 13, I heard it and I immediately understood it. I understood what was going on in it. I understood the tragedy of it and I understood the beauty of the performance of it. And then I decided, hey, I got to go get into Neil Young, what do I do? I, oh, he's got a, a compilation. What was that compilation? It was Decade. And that is a great way to start this show because that was a two-CD set, three al- three albums that came out in, I think, 77. And it introduced me to everything he had ever done from the beginning to the end. that he had been in a band called Buffalo Springfield. I knew of the existence of Buffalo Springfield. My dad had told me about them. But all I knew about them was, you know, stop, hey, what's that sound? I didn't know anything else. I didn't know Neil was a part of that. I didn't know anything about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, really, even at that time. I didn't know that uh, Heart of Gold, the first time I put that song on was when I got that set, and I heard it, and I was like, oh, 
I guess I think I've heard this once or twice on the radio, but I had no idea that that was Neil Young. Neither did most of America, apparently, because the week after it went to number one, that uh, they sent a band that they thought sounded like Neil Young to number one as well, which is America doing a horse with no name, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. But I was immediately gripped by it. I was transfixed by how diverse the sound of his music was. You know, and the more I learned about him, the more mesmerizing he became. He seems to be this mysterious figure who could do like, you know, pop rock, he could do country music, he could do folk, he could do hard rock, like straight up like jam, you know, jam fests. Then he could do randomly pull off electronica or just go in any particular direction that he wanted. And more often than not, it worked, you know, until you get to like the 80s and stuff like landing on water mind you but the mystery of him was also compelling what was interesting as a child of the 90s is that there wasn't a lot of good information around back then there wasn't um you know there was no google there was no wikipedia or anything like that and neil young's discography had been famously out of print uh, a lot of those albums some of his best albums were not available on cd so I didn't know where to look or how to find out about this guy. All I had as a little blueprint to follow was Decade. And then I started working slowly back through that and then you know, going to vinyl stores to see if I could find the missing pieces. Uh, and it became almost like a jigsaw puzzle that I had to reassemble for myself. And when you put that kind of effort into delving into an artist, you're never going to forget it. It's going to become one of those formative musical experiences in your life. I remember the efforts that I had to go to to find a copy of On the Beach (laughs) or uh, Time Fades Away. Now you can get them on the internet and it's easy peasy, but as late as like 1996 or 7, um, this stuff was impossible to find. In fact, it wouldn't even be released on CD until the 2000s. So it was like it felt like it was an accomplishment to discover the music. And what was the music that you discovered? Well, what was Neil Young? Neil Young was this Canadian who had this very thin, reedy voice. And a lot of people complain. They say, like, yeah, yeah, I like his songwriting. I like him when he plays with CSN. I just don't like his voice. I've loved Neil Young's voice from the second that I first heard it. There's something about it that has a purity to it, and it has a precision to it. Uh, producers hated it famously. You know, They didn't want him to sing on Buffalo Springfield songs. They didn't want him to sing on CSN songs. But it has character. When he wants to snark, he sounds snarky and sarcastic. When he wants to sound resigned, utterly despondent, he pulls it off so perfectly and when he wants to actually just you know sing in in what i consider to be a beautiful tone his tone is as pure as someone like Joni mitchell's on the female side and of course they were friends and uh, you know they hung out a lot and shared a lot of canadian experiences together i think they're wonderful analogs um uh the guy has a singing voice that some people never will fully identify with but always to me said immediately i'm different and I'm strange. And that was what Neil Young was. As far back as his earliest days with the, with the Springfield and whatnot, he was a strange guy.
before I go on and I explain sort of the origins of Neil, Scott, I'd love to know what your impressions as a sort of relative noob are. Yes, after a couple of episodes in which uh, Jeff played the role of, uh, of newbie and someone who is unfamiliar largely with the bands we had been covering, that role falls to me on Neil Young. And I don't, well, that's not true. I was going to say I don't have a particularly good reason. Uh, his voice has never bothered me. I, I, I know uh, Jeff talked about the critiques or criticism in some circles. His voice has never bothered me. And I've known Neil Young's songs, certainly, uh, through through classic rock radio and, uh, and, and some other venues. And in, even through the 90s when he was doing the stuff with Pearl Jam and sort of having this renaissance with the grunge movement all around. So... He's not been a total mystery, but this discography of Neil Young's is really intimidating for someone who is unfamiliar with uh, the artist and the music. And uh, that's a, a big reason why I, I don't want to say stayed away, but the reason why I didn't dive into it previously. And I, I got to say, after going through this first part that we're going to do today, which is... Uh, which is up through essentially, what, 1973 or so, right? T time yeah. fades away. I don't think I'm wrong <laughs> about that. Um, it can be difficult to try to, try, to, try to find an entry point for someone who's really relatively new to Neil Young because, as I know we'll talk about, um, he, he's unafraid, totally unafraid, to uh, upend expectations, do things completely different than what might be expected and 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 find a new path and then you throw in the fact you know early on of course you get the buffalo springfield stuff and there's music with crosby stills nash and young here and there uh there is uh as jeff said that the problem uh, early on at least when he and i were you know in the same age of trying to find some of this stuff which was out of print and, and unavailable and now you have Neil Young archive and all sorts of stuff that you know, the floodgates have opened. There's an immense amount of Neil Young material out there. It's the opposite problem now. Now it's like right. a fire hose. Yeah. It's just like, ah, there's so much to listen to. And to try to figure out a way to attack it was really hard for me before, of course, being thrown in to the deep end of the pool, prepping for this uh, part one of our Neil Young episode. So. Uh, by no means do I come in with some sort of preconceived notion that I'm not going to like Neil Young or I don't like the things that I've heard. Jeff laughed at me a bit because I, 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 I didn't have Decade. The only Neil Young album that I've ever owned is Harvest. Uh, never had Decade. Uh, there are a few songs that are pretty new to me that uh, might be surprising to, to true Neil Young fans, but can't do anything about that now. Um, so I, I'm excited to, uh, to actually... I'm, I, I enjoyed a lot in this first part, and I'm excited to get to the second part because that's where it seems it will be, uh, well, even more interesting. But that's that's for a different day. Today we start early. Young Neil Young, so to speak, Jeff. The, the Young Young. And, and, of course, what is there to say about this guy? First of all, you, you know, you talk about what are Canada's most famous and beloved artists, right? Musical artists. Well, you got like, you know, there's Leonard Cohen. Sure, there's Joni Mitchell. There's, <laughs> I was going to make a joke and say the Guess Who, but the Guess Who actually covered a Neil Young song when he was first this fledgling songwriter. The Flying on the Ground is Wrong. So they did Neil a solid. I won't, I won't mock the Guess Who on this show. But, of course, the biggest one that you think about is, is Neil. And, you know, what was he was born in like the mid 40s, I think, like right after World War, World War II. 
he was one of the last kids to ever suffer from polio from right before the polio vaccine happened. And then, of course, it affected the way he walked through the rest of his life. Uh, but his dad was like a, fa- a radio announcer who got divorced from his mom and he went to live with his mom. They moved all over Canada, you know, like, you know, and for people who are familiar with Canadian geography, which incidentally includes me, (laughs) you know, the differences between like, you know, Southern Ontario and Northern Ontario or Winnipeg, which is where he spent a lot of his time uh, as a child, you know, that stuff is alien to me in the same way that I guess they probably don't understand the difference between Chicago and downstate Illinois, right? Fine, it's not their fault. It's not my fault. Now I'm going back to Canada on a journey through the past. And I won't be back till February comes. I will stay with you if you'll stay with me. Said the fiddler to the drum And we'll have good time on a journey through the past Uh, Manitoba seems like a lovely place, though. Uh, and of course, he got into rock music. And you know, to really, to, you know, to keep the story short, what you need to know is that he became like you know one of those high school rock and roll kids, you know, in like the early '60s, inspired by the Beatles and Chuck Berry, and you know, like all the all the rock greats from the late '50s and early '60s. And he started his own little band called the Squires. You know, you you think that of musical scenes in America, like you know, is the Chicago music scene really like a major thing compared to say, you know, Minnesota or New York or Los Angeles? Well, what do you think the Winnipeg music scene must have been like relative to other musical markets? Not that big, but when he was playing with his band, the Squires in Winnipeg, he met a guy just who happened to be touring with his own band. And they uh, met and they became friends when they were playing some small club. And the name of that guy was Stephen Stills. Now, that, you know, put that name in your back pocket and hold on to it because that's not what will happen next if that's what you're thinking. Stills goes back to, you know, Los Angeles, which is where he's from. And Youngin tours around. He plays Ontario. Of course, if it's Canada, well, what are you going to do? You have to, you have to make it in Toronto. And he gets the, his teeth knocked out, essentially. Uh, he gets rejected. People say, I hate the voice. I don't like your songs. Your songs are bad. Write better songs. Do better. Uh, and, you know, it's a kind of a devastating moment for him. But what he actually then does is he ends up writing better songs. He writes songs like Sugar Mountain, which become one of his most famous songs. He makes fun of every time he played in the 70s. He would actually, in the middle of the song, mock it for being juvenile and immature. But, of course, it's famous and it inspired Joni Mitchell to write The Circle Game because um, they were friends already at that time. Well, I wrote it five years ago when I was on my 20th birthday. And I don't feel the same way about a lot of things now as I did then. So I'm 
you know, I'd feel better if you sort of sang along with me, just to sort of make myself less conspicuous. If you don't know the words, just, you know, I, you're all university students, and just memorize them after the first time. And, Then he joins, you know, Jeff, I know you wanted to mention this. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us uh, what, what the least possibly expected band uh, for Neil Young to join as a lead guitarist might be in Toronto in 1966? Well, it's a band called the Minor Birds, but that's, <laughs> yeah. not, that's not the most interesting part of it. The most interesting part of it is Rick James. <laughs> Rick James, as you know. The Rick super, James. They are in a band together. In the Ontario. super freak himself. Yes. Yep. And the best part about the band is they were they were about to they had a Motown Records contract. They were recording the album, and the story goes is that the, the, it all ended. It all came crashing down. And why? Because Rick James got arrested by the United States Army for being AWOL. Like, what he didn't mention to the other members of the band is that he ducked <laughs> out of the Army to go to Canada to join, to start a band, which is just, again, one of those, those stories that's, that's, that's too perfect. It, it's the foundation of, you know, the Neil Young legend. But what makes it even better is that Neil and his friend who was in the band with him, a guy named Bruce Palmer, just decided, listen, we're going to pawn off all of our instruments. Screw it. We'll buy a car. What's the car they decided to buy? It's a hearse. All right. They as bought one a does. What'd you say? As, as one does. As one. You know, you know, you want to you want to stand out in a crowd, and it's a good thing they got that hearse. Because when they ended up taking it down from Toronto to Los Angeles to try to make their fame, to try to get a record contract, to try to become real musicians in a real happening scene, they just happened to be passing through traffic one day when uh Stephen Stills, who was there with his friend and bandmate, Richie Fury, uh, happened to be going the other direction. And they saw the hearse. And they was like, holy crap, is that, is that, the, is that Neil Young's hearse? So they like, pulled a Yui, ran up to him in, like, I think, Sunset Boulevard, made him roll the windows down, and all of a sudden these old friends were reunited. And so what do they do? This is the only thing we can do is we got to start a band together. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you have the origins of Buffalo Springfield. There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. 
I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Now, does somebody, you know, do you have thought? I have a lot, so many thoughts. What are your opinions, both of you? I asked you both. You know, I know you know this stuff really well, Jeff. Scott, I asked you to listen to that Buffalo Springfield boxed set. What are your opinions on this band? Because I think that they're one of the great lost 60s stories. Yeah, so I don't uh, agree. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff is um, is fine. There's some good moments. I, I mean, clearly... Stills and, and Young are standouts, right? You can you can hear both those guys beginning to find their songwriting legs early on these Buffalo Springfield albums. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, you know, Neil Young's not even singing his own songs, or at least uh, some of them on the, on the first album, Buffalo Springfield album, Richie uh, Furet is singing. And again, I, I don't necessarily, I do, I mean, I get it and I don't. I get it from a, from a standpoint that's not a classic rock vocalist right it's not the way you design it in a lab but even on these early songs i i, I don't find anything to complain about when it comes to neil young's vocals they're they're, they're perfectly fine they're, they're good in places um but i'm not sure that anything uh you know the second album buffalo springfield again i think is superior to the first album i don't know if there's a ton of debate on on that point um uh, but i'm not certain there's a a ton of songs from the first album that i would consider sort of uh classic oh um, so wrong well, anyway, i do like both stills and young you know their their guitar playing is very they're both very talented and we'd, we'd hear them play of course in the future on both uh their work together and, and apart the first album and the band itself wasn't sure about the first album didn't think it captured the excitement of their live show one of the songs I like that Neil Young wrote here on the first one is Burned, and that's one I certainly can picture being far better live than they got um, on on tape here for the uh, debut album. There's a great uh, feeling of forward momentum. The harmonies are pretty sweet on that. Uh, they, they, they harmonize well together. Neil Young's voice would harmonize well with Stephen Stills, and that would be useful in the future as well. Uh, you know... Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. That's clearly from a songwriting standpoint, I think the standout track um, on the first Buffalo Springfield album, this graceful folk rock ballad that, again, Richie Fure is singing instead of Neil Young. Great guitar arrangement. Uh, actually, I, I like Fure's vocals on that song, and there's nothing... I, I, think, I, think, I think he does a better job than Neil would have done with it, and I, I think, you know, this is the lead single from the album. For what it's worth, everybody associates with the debut album, but it was actually released after the album, and then it was only like later tacked on. Nowadays, Clancy can't even sing what's supposed to be the lead track from it. It's just too complicated a song and it a is. lyric to have ever like succeeded commercially. But that lyric is so great. It's so weird and, and obscurantist. I, I think it's Neil Young writing basically about his own failure to, you know, to be accepted as a songwriter when he was back during those Toronto days I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, he's saying, "Who's putting sponge in all the bells that I once rang?" You know, like you know, dimming my sound. In other words. Mm -hmm. Or, and then you know, and the end at the end, the, the narrator is like, he's like sitting in the corner of a darkened room with his hands on the floor, you know, saying like, oh, it was, it was wishing and a hoping, 
you know, who should be sleeping but should, but is instead writing this song wishing and a hope and that he wasn't so damn wrong. You know, who's saying, baby, that don't mean a thing because nowadays Clancy can't even sing. Who's Clancy? I don't know. But he's obviously somebody who used to sing and used to be known for singing, and now he can't even do it anyways because his confidence is shot as well. It's a great lyric, and it's one of those things where you understand that Neil Young just came right out of the gate fully formed as a songwriter. And who's coming home on old 95? Who's got the feeling yet to keep me alive? Though having it, sharing it, ain't quite the same. Ain't a golden nugget you can't lay a claim. Other note I want to make about the first album is, you know, one of the reasons Stephen Stills could be in Buffalo Springfield is because he was not in a little band called The Monkees. Uh, yep. He had he had tried out for this, uh, you know, made-for-TV band called The Monkees and, and was passed over. Was that Peter Torkslot, I think? Uh, either way. So he's not in The Monkees. He's in Buffalo Springfield. But then you hear something like uh, Go and Say Goodbye, which is a Stills uh, track on the first side of the album. And it has those country rock underpinnings and I almost kind of wish we could have heard Stephen Stills and, and Mike Nesmith uh, sort of collaborate, work together. Those guys seemingly had some pretty uh, similar sensibilities when it came to the music. That comes out in something like Go and Say Goodbye. Jeff? This is, broadly speaking, I think this is a band that doesn't quite know what it wants to be yet, uh, especially on the first album. Uh, apart from, you, you could tell they're in the same scene as The Birds. Um, but the, the production choices are kind of all over the map. And that's, that, that's, that's where I think this album suffers. The second one is a little bit more cohesive. I think the best moments are when the production style meets the song. Um, for instance, the orchestration on, uh, on some of the tracks works and on others it doesn't work. Um, they, they, they do suffer from a lot of safe choices on this record production-wise. With the big exception of nowadays, Clancy can't even sing. I, I've got to give some credit to the management, the label, whoever it was, who thought to release this bizarre single as, as the very as the way to introduce the world to this band. You've got it starts out with kind of a baroque pop feel, and then shifts to an Irish waltz in the chorus, and, and the and the lyrics are are completely impenetrable. Um, Flying on the ground is wrong, which has been mentioned. Um, this is this era, I think, is one of the only times where anyone else would sing a song that Neil wrote. Um, I don't think Foray's vocals here are poor, but again, I just think the production is is awful and does the song a, a disservice. It sounds like it came right out of an LA pop hit factory. 
Um, and, and I think this is, Flying on the Ground is wrong all the way through the first, the, the self-titled first Neil Young album. We see a lot of a trend that I think would continue throughout his career, which is that the first recorded version of a song does not end up to be the definitive version of that song. Um, it happens a lot with the Springfield songs, uh, uh, given some of the production choices. Sometimes a, a later version that he just does solo acoustic is more satisfying, at least to me. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that the, the reason that Furay is singing this song, of course, is because Neil isn't quite confident in his voice yet. And as, as Jeff said earlier, it's definitely an acquired taste. Uh, I mean, the story about Burned, I think, is that, they, they, as Neil says it on the liner notes to Decade, is that like he was afraid to sing the voice, sing the vocal for that. So the band just like you know kept giving him a bunch of coffee and uppers, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then just like ran him into the studio booth to get him to dash it off before he lost his confidence. Last. Yeah, and, and and it really was just all about the confidence because, as as you guys said earlier, uh, his, his voice is is so uh, communicative, and and it and he says so much with his voice, even though it's not uh, it's certainly not what anyone would consider a a, a classically. Uh, he doesn't have a, a a gifted instrument, for for lack of a better term, um, and his voice grates on a lot of people, um, but he gets across what he wants to say in so many different ways and so powerfully. And, and, and the, the, the more he gets comfortable with that, the stronger, the, the stronger the recordings get. I think the other thing I just want to point out is I really do um, think he came fully formed uh, as a songwriter, you know, after that bout of, you know, uh, that bout of self doubt earlier in his career, a song like flying on the ground is wrong is, you know, as good as any mature Neil Young song in terms of its lyrics, it's actually a drug song of all things. Yeah. You know, he's talking about like flying, you know, if you're flying, well, what are you doing? Well, flying on the ground. Well, that just means, you know, you know, if it's wrong to do that, then I'm sorry to let you down. Uh, he's talking about how it's harder for him to relate to people who frankly haven't, you know, gone, gotten high or tripped or anything like that. Cause once you've done that, it, it, the world just seems a little bit different. But the the craft of the construction of that song is so good. The, the core, the lyric um, in the verse, and the way that the melody is constructed. You know, is my world now falling down? Uh, it's a beautiful up and down melody, such an intelligent sequence of chords. And then it goes into that great middle eight, whereas you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just a helpless child. That is a mature way of writing songs that it almost seems that in, in a weird way he would actually try to move away from in later years uh, that he would actually get more primitivist on purpose uh, because this is so refined sometimes I feel like I'm just a helpless child 
Sometimes I feel like a king But baby, since I have changed I can't take nothing home Lights at a country fair Never shine but always flare If I'm bright enough to see you You're just too dark to care But if crying and holding on And flying on the ground is wrong Then I'm sorry to let you down But you're from My side of town And I'll miss you And I think actually, you know, you can even see that in, in a funny way on what comes next on Buffalo Springfield. Again, you have a song like Mr. Soul, which mm-hmm. is basically nothing more than the I can't get no satisfaction yes. riff yep. <laughs> repurposed. And it's great. It's great. But it is it is straight. I think in the liner notes, they even like give a thanks to the Rolling Stones. Neil Young's ripped off more than a few Rolling Stones songs in his career, as we will find out later. Um, uh, and, but then also the other thing you see on Buffalo Springfield, again, is him just doing these incredibly sprawling mm-hmm. sonic experiments. Like, I don't know, what do you guys think about songs like Expecting to Fly and Broken Arrow? They're just, they're so weird, so innovative, and so ahead of their time. Um, it, it's not like they're, it's not so much they sound like they're from another album. Uh, they stand out so much. It's like they sound they're like they sound like they're from another planet or or another era. And and this is what I talked about earlier, where the the, the production values actually meet the song in the right place. Those two things intersect. He starts to rely on Jack Nietzsche, who is a a, a protege of Phil Spector. So anybody who listens to the song, that's not going to be a, a surprise, given how and, and it, also and also how weird it is. And also, he was like he was a you know a famous friend of the Rolling Stones and played on a bunch of their stuff as well. That was another yep. uh, trick he knew. So he he was okay with uh, Neil ripping off the Stones. <laughs> and those songs they're they're just gorgeous. And and how they he's he's even got the the, the part that checks back to Mr. Soul. Mm-hmm. And you've got carnival noises and crowds cheering and and just what they're doing with sampling. There's definitely a Brian Wilson influence. Of course, they're in L.A. Uh, how could there not be? Um, but this this album it, it it really does everything does appear to click on this album.
I uh, appreciate more than love those two songs, Expecting to Fly and Broken Arrow. Um, and I guess to Jeff's point, although we have two Jeffs on the show today, uh, but the point about him being fully formed as a songwriter, he's clearly sort of working ahead of the curve here. I, I think the sorts of things he was uh, doing on both of those songs, Expecting to Fly and Broken Arrow, would... I don't know if I, he'd do them better, but he would re- refine them on some future tracks. And so this is this is sort of a template that's 90% done, 95% done. It's already very, very much sort of down the down the path of being where he wants uh, to be. Uh, Mr. Soul, which Jeff mentioned, is just, yeah, the satisfaction riff turned, turned around, turned inside out. And lyrically, you know... The lyrical conceit there about sort of the, uh, the the reluctant rock and roll star, the showbiz grind. Even early on, uh, we see some of the uh, instincts of Neil Young to sort of reject or at least be very cautious of the sort of adulation that perhaps stardom would bring him and his bandmates down the road. Uh, it's very clear in a song like Mr. Soul. I was down. Those are the only three songs, though, on this Buffalo Springfield Again album that uh, Neil Young wrote. You had four songs from Stephen Stills and Richie Ferre, who did not write anything on the first album, but sang uh, a few songs. This time writes three songs. Uh, most of his are, I, I mean, I, I would say kind of slight. There, there's a, a, a child's claim to fame is, is nice. Um, Good Time Boy has some Memphis horn soul on it. It's It's okay. But I think from a songwriting uh, standpoint, his his efforts are, are far behind what Neil Young and Stephen Stills are able to do on uh, Buffalo Springfield again. Well, and part I, of the reason he only has three songs on it is because this is the period where he kept on quitting the band, like in, in random <laughs> fits of peak, and then rejoining the band later on. I mean, expecting to fly a broken arrow, basically done as solo tracks they right. he did them alone with jack nietzsche um and you know that's the joke about buffalo springfield is that they could never keep it together because you know for one reason or another one one member or another was like sabotaging the group and you know just when they started to get their feet well bruce palmer gets arrested for smoking weed and deported to canada or uh you know when they were about to go on the tonight show johnny carson neil young quits the band in a huff because he thinks it's just too commercial it's too much of a sellout man 
and he refuses to do it, which is, in retrospect, you know, they would be singing with Tom Jones not one year later. So, like, what the heck was Neil up on? Um, it was a great performance for CSN, by the way. Neil Young playing on the Tom Jones show. Well, it works, believe it or not. Um, and that, of course, is what leads to their final album, Last Time Around, which we don't have to spend too much time on because Neil is barely there on it. He contributes two songs, one of which he sings, which is I Am a Child. It's you know pretty well-known song. It's on Decade. It's a good tune. Uh, the other one, though, I really love is called On the Way Home. And again, it's given to Richie sing, to sing. And uh, it's a song that Neil will return to over and over and over and over again throughout his solo career. I think he's played it on, on practically every tour. Uh, you know, up through the '70s, and it's a song just about leaving things and moving onwards. So, you know, you know. Now I won't be back till later on if I do come back at all. But I love you, and I miss you now. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment set to a beautiful melody. It's one of the Springfield's finest songs, but it was also basically Neil Young's way of saying goodbye. <laughs> what he does he quits the band and he goes and he does his first solo album and this first solo album is a bit of a polarizing one for a lot of people i happen to love it i know that jeff is not a huge fan of it i don't know where you fall scott it has at least one acknowledged classic that everyone knows which is the loner well yeah everyone you know, everyone now that i've heard it well I, that, again you, you told me like hey this on the loner is great and i'm like how have you not heard that before i i plead the tom sawyer defense uh, uh yes, yes, Jeff yes, Lewis, which yes, is which always... is it's very likely i have i heard it somewhere on a soundtrack or on a tv show <laughs> or something and didn't realize what i was listening to i do not discount that possibility but i had never consciously heard the loner before listening for uh, listening to the, to the debut album for the for the prep for the show I love how you'll always be able to hold Rush against me, uh, <laughs> you know. But what do you what do we what do we say about Neil Young's debut album? So I, I'll just say a few things. Uh, I, I like it a lot, actually. It's not it's not perfect, and it's 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 sort of singular in the catalog, at least you know from what I've heard so far. There's still a long way to go, but there's nothing else quite like this in the early stages of Neil Young's career. That there are, or the later stages. Don't okay, worry, there you it, go. it's pretty unique. It, it does seem at times there are sort of. I think I, I had uh, read someone write. He was like discharging some Buffalo Springfield ideas. Right there are there are some things that are sort of uh, feel like they're they're left over from from that bout of creativity, that era of creativity with Buffalo Springfield. Um, well, there are a handful of really good tracks. Yes, The Loner. Uh, <sighs> all this is worth it just to hear a song like that, right? And, and there are a few more in this in this episode we'll get to that, uh, that really blew me away, knocked my socks off, so to speak. If you see him in the subway, he'll be down. 
for me, it's it, it's the old laughing lady is one that stands out for me, which has the strings in the background, and it's electric piano instead of like you know you know guitars or anything like that, an acoustic guitar thing. And then you know there's the gospel backing vocalists, and then you listen to the words of the song. It's this very sort of slow burn, slow jam actually, <laughs> kind of a groove. And then you listen to the song and you realize it, it's about alcoholism. It, it's it's about people just sort of drowning their sorrows in cheap booze because they can't face the world and don't want to like you know look at their own failings and it's such an interesting idea for a song you know even neil young is like 22 at this time and he's already coming up with ideas like this it, it, it's to me maybe the highlight of the record There's a slip in on the stairway Just don't feel right And there's a rumbling in the bedroom And a flashing of light There's the old laughing lady Everything is all right. This album has the Rye Cooter factor going for it. I, one of my all-time, probably top five favorite guitarists, Rye Cooter, he plays on this record. That's important in its favor. There's a pair of songs, I, I, when I listen, I kind of heard them as, as cousins. Uh, I've Been Waiting For You, uh, which is a really strong song. I'm Waiting For A Woman To Save My Life is, I believe, the opening line, right? right. Very stark. Strong melody, love that kind of descending riff that's used as the hook on that song. Kind of a ragged solo from Neil Young. I've been waiting for you And you've been of the album there's um, a song called what did you do to my life which i, I kind of saw as a as a flip side or a cousin to i've been waiting for you after uh, the waiting is over uh the chorus is this ghostly echo of a line what did you do to my life uh, and those songs kind of taken together i like and i just want to point out very quickly uh neil young's debut has already done three albums buffalo springfield still just 23 years old. I mean, obviously you're still playing, uh, recording today. It helps when you start so young, just 23 when this album was released. I don't, as Jeff said, I, I don't love this disc. I've always found it to be kind of an unsatisfying listen because uh, again, I'm, I'm familiar with versions of, the, of almost all these tracks that I, that I prefer. Um, and, and, the, and the production is sort of a Jack Nietzsche, Buffalo Springfield hangover. 
Um, it almost strikes me, especially on the old Laughing Lady, which uh, the old Laughing Lady, I never appreciated until I heard the MTV Unplugged version, which is just him solo acoustic on an open tune guitar, which I loved. Um, I never liked it here. It's got almost this Nashville sound kind of production where the whole thing is larded up with strings and vocal choruses and all that. Um, the loner, on the other hand, does pretty much arrive in its final form um, to its credit. As a as a guitar nerd, I will also say, uh, Mr. Soul might have been the first song that he played in what he would call demodal tuning, um, but the loner was 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 his first solo. Um, it starts to show up all over this tuning. It's almost like his version of the Keith Richards open G tuning. <laughs> um, this is essentially a standard tuned guitar, except both of the E strings go down to D. So you get these really deep droning D notes um, through every chord. The Loner, Cinnamon Girl, Ohio, it, it shows up all over the place. He, he, always, he always goes back to this, don't let it bring you down. Um, and then the, the other one I want to point out, because, uh, again, it's, it's very minimally produced. It sounds, it sounds like it was recorded in a closet, is The Last Trip to Tulsa. This is when he gets into some really impressionistic lyrics. Um, it, it definitely owes a lot to, um, to, to Dylan. Uh, certainly some of Dylan's longer songs. Uh, and I think you can draw a direct line from Last Trip to Tulsa to something like Ambulance Blues, which we'll see a few uh, a few discs later. Um, these long, meandering, repetitive songs that yet are still completely satisfying. I said, no, it's not a case of being lonely we have here. I've been working on this palm tree For 87 years He said Go get lost And walk toward his Cadillac I chopped down the palm tree And it landed on his Bed I think the last thing I want to mention about this album, which is fascinating for its uniqueness, but I agree with everyone else here that it, it's sort of preliminary. It's on the next record that Neil's going to find a sound that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Uh, I really do love the song Here We Are in the Years, which it, it, it's a fascinating one in that it, it seems like it's two separate songs that have been put together. You know, it gives this nice sort of bucolic uh, you know, rural vibe at the beginning. You're like, now that the holidays have come, we can relax and watch the sun. You know, go to the country, take the dog. You know, look at the sky without the smog. And there's a great line where it says, see the world and laugh at the farmers feeding hogs. Eat hot dogs. Uh, so maybe that might be a little bit of a juvenile lyric. Um, but then all of a sudden, it just turns into this strange lament at the end where he says, you know, here we are in the years where lives become careers and children cry in fear, let us out of here. Uh, it, it takes this inscrutable turn that I've still been, I've been mystified about to this day, but I, I, I've always, I've always, you know, sort of you know, applied my own private meaning to it, you know, from this sort of happy, like, hey, let's go out on the weekend and uh, visit the country. And then to this sort of like, 
what are we doing here? Are we trapped feeling? So this very mature and a very kind of indirect and emotive rather than rational lyric uh, it, it, it's 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 a lyric that sort of gets its point across but sort of resolutely not making complete sense but yeah this is obviously a very experimental album um and, and what happens next well what actually happens next is uh that uh, Neil Young is invited to join uh, a couple of his friends in this new supergroup they're forming uh, called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, and you know who, who Stephen Stills is. Uh, I'm pretty sure you know who David Crosby is. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you know who Graham Nash is. Uh, I don't have to explain their backstory or how they all got together. And you know what he says? He says, no. <laughs> no, thank you. Who do I want to play with? I want to play with this bar band that I just found instead. What are their names? Crazy Horse. This is the beginning of Neil Young with Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse are just a bunch of guys who, who, in the opinions of all the professional musicians that Neil Young knew at that time, couldn't play at all. You know, they didn't like Billy Talbot. They didn't like Molina. They didn't like uh, Danny Witten that much as the guitarist. But Neil Young saw these guys and he said, this is the, this is the band that I want to play with. And so what do I want to play? I'm not playing folk music anymore. There's one song on this album that's actually quite folkish called Round and Round. It's very beautiful. It's, an, it's a Buffalo Springfield era outtake. But everything else on this album is basically just gut bucket rock. And it is considered, widely considered, to be one of the greatest albums ever recorded. You take my hand, I'll take your hand. Together we may get away This much madness is too much sorrow It's impossible to make it agree with that assessment but i know jeff does oh this is this is where it all clicks for Pro, production who needs production we're gonna, <laughs> we're, we're gonna plug guitars into amps we're gonna turn them up we're gonna hang a microphone off the ceiling there's your production exactly um 
yeah, I mean, if if you want to know the, the dynamic of this band, when, when he gets together with them, they're actually called the Rockets. And he he renames them Crazy Horse, which gives you an idea of, of what the dynamic of this band would be like, uh, which is essentially the the three other guys acting as a blank canvas of noise over which to sing and solo. I mean, there's there's four guys on the stage playing music, but Neil's the only one who's actually a musician. Um, <laughs> they're, and they are, you know, damned if they're not the world's most predictable rhythm section. The 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 word the word plotting always comes to mind. Um, but but boy, does it work! It just works. There, <clears throat> the tempos are changing in the mid song. If you've ever seen them, see them live. Yeah, they do not. They do not keep great time. No, <laughs> but, but Neil just doesn't care. He doesn't care. He he he. That's the one band that gives him space to just be him and do his thing. And they're gonna do their four four backbeat in the background and make a lot of noise, and everybody's gonna be happy. an album that probably invents stoner rock it's got a huge influence on jam bands mm-hmm. um and and it's it has the it has the quality of being really heavy without being proto metal or proto punk and it's not the stooges it's not black sabbath and yet it's still really really heavy and loud i feel like i could just smell the marijuana smoke oh, wafting yeah. through the air when I hear songs like Down by the River. Yep. Where like Neil Young's guitar solo, like on that literally it just starts by going da 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 it's one note. As is the Cinnamon Girl guitar solo, which is literally known as the one note guitar solo. Exactly. But you know what? You know why not why use two notes when one note will do? And then yeah, you you get a song like Cinnamon Girl, which is actually you know the opposite of these famously on this record, there are these two long, druggy, stoned jams that are legendary and beloved among Neil Young fans and even people who only casually know him. And those are Down by the River, you know, Down by the River, I Shot My Baby, and then Cowgirl in the Sand. But there's also Cinnamon Girl, which is just this very sprightly, banging, upbeat, hopping thing. And then at the end of that song, you know, when he says, Pa, send me money now, I got to make it some now, I need another chance. You see my baby loves to dance. And he goes, woo! And then that one note guitar solo just carries you all the way home. Oh, baby. 
and it's a tight three minutes. Tight three minute song, beautiful song, and uh, obviously the most immediately accessible song on this record. I, I kind of want to know what Scott makes of this. I like uh, this album quite a bit. Uh, Cinnamon Girl certainly is one of the Neil Young songs that I was familiar with. I, I would not have necessarily placed it just in a, in a timeline this early in his career because this is still, what, 1969? Yep. Uh, yep. I, I would not have placed Cinnamon Girl in 1969 necessarily, but there it is. Uh, you guys covered that uh, song very well. Uh, yeah, you know, Jeff was mentioning how how much uh, both kind of stoner rock and then jam bands. Uh, these songs, a lot of these songs uh, exist as... Uh, canvases sketches uh for neil young to do what he wants to do uh, jeff explained it very well they're just sort of frames uh so that he can he can he can paint again on that canvas what he wants to do both those long songs down by the river which is not quite 10 minutes and then cowgirl in the sand which is more than 10 minutes um i i, I enjoy both of them I, I like probably down by the river a little bit more uh, than, than Cowgirl in the Sand, but both work and both sort of set that, again, jammy, uh, rough-hewn template that bands could really grab onto. Uh, the song, uh, another song I really love, really love, is the title track, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Man, that's a fine song. Um, that's that, that's country rock put through the crazy horse filter is yes. what it is and what the vocals it's, it's maybe the first alt country song yeah you could argue it has been yeah. covered by a lot of those bands in that in that genre uh, and yeah. those vocals what recorded through a talkback microphone uh with essentially no processing on them uh just a beautiful song gotta get away from the everyday running around that yeah that that like defines an entire uh genre that would that would come uh, love everybody knows this is nowhere I think I'd like to go back home and take it easy there's a woman that I'd like to get to know a living there everybody seems to wonder what it's like down here I gotta get away from this day to day You know, on the, on the second half, or actually in the first, Round and Round won't be long as on the first half of the album, too. Uh, yeah. Man, that's a beautiful, almost like hypnotizing strum. Gentle, soft, and slow. So yeah, you get the loudness and, and, and the roughness, but there are still some really pretty gentle moments on this record, too. I know There's Jeff, even a weird Arabic dirge, which is the Requiem for the Rockets, the Running I, Dry. Yeah, I don't I really, I really like that song. I like it when he incorporates the violin. Yeah, uh, at violin and harmonica to sort of uh, to, to to accompany the droning guitar. I'm sorry for the things I've done. I've shamed myself with lies. Cruelty has punctured me, and now I'm running dry. I'm sorry for the things I've done 
I've shamed myself with lies But soon these things are overcome And can't be recognized got a very yeah that violin has a very strange gypsy sound to yep. it yeah but it's very slow and then there's again there's more country rock with the losing end mm-hmm. which he would actually keep it's funny the songs that he keeps returning to on these records are never the ones you expect he pulls out the losing end and plays it like all throughout the tonight's the night <laughs> tour why just sounds right with the rest of that music and that frame of mind that he's in back then it's a uh, very very possible this one will end up on my two albums at the end of the episode a long way to go though and i can change my mind but yeah i really like this album so i guess now we must inevitably discuss the supergroup that he was finally coaxed into joining which is crosby stills nash and of course now they become because this is a group that's composed of like individual solo artists they go from csn to csny and a lot of people would argue that they were never better than when they were CSNY. What were CSN originally? I mean, these are the three guys who were basically all folkies of some variety or another, except for Stills, who was a rocker. Um, and they had their primary selling point was their amazing vocal harmonies. Mm-hmm. And they weren't quite the level of the Beach Boys, but they were pretty much, you know, right up there as good as anyone else. But they didn't have any balls, and they knew it. They needed some real <laughs> fire for their stage performances. And so that's when they dragooned Neil into the band. And Neil helps give them their greatest album, which is Deja Vu. Not the only CSNY album, or the, not the only one that Young would play on, but it's certainly the most famous one, and it's the best of them. And of course, he only there's a lot of things you could talk about with that album, but they're not really relevant for us. Young contributes two songs to the record, though, and one of them is uh, universally famous. It's on his greatest hits. It's well known by everyone. It's a, it's another one of those songs about you know yearning for um, you know for the feeling of being back at home. Uh, but also with a sadness in the way of here we are in the years, and it's called Helpless, uh, where you know he's thinking about you know the big birds flying in a town in North Ontario, 
but he says that you're thinking about that just leaves us helpless, 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 helpless. And I think Stephen Stills actually was kind of upset by the sentiment, so he ended up writing a response song to it called We Are Not Helpless, <laughs> which is like a little bit overly direct, I suppose, but it's, it's interesting that he felt the need to do it. Um, I don't know what you guys think of that song, but I'll tell you my real secret favorite uh, from, from CSNY's Deja Vu is the second one that Young does for it, which no one ever talks about. And it's called Country Girl. It's a combination of three separate songs that he'd had rocket knocking around. You find early demos of them on his archives and on the Buffalo Springfield set. Um, uh, down, 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 Whiskey Boot Hill, and then Country Girl, I Think You're Pretty. But this is, again, him for the last time, really, ever trying to just do some giant production number like mm -hmm. you know let's just fill specter the shit out of this song so you've got glistening organs you've got timpanies you've got you know all sorts of keyboard overdubs and then the most important thing is you have the incredible harmonies from crosby stills and nash and i gotta give these guys credit they may not have been my favorite band but at the end of that song, when it goes, you know, if I could stand to see her crying, um, Nash literally takes off into the stratosphere with that high, high voice of his. And it is one of the more transcendent moments mm -hmm. in Young's entire history. If I could stand. Spoiler alert, Country Girl will be on my top five at the end of this episode. Great. Um, he, when I was going back through the catalog in, in, to, to, to prep for this, I was sort of struck. I had never really thought about this before, but what is Neil's contribution to this band, really? It's not, <laughs> it's not that much from a songwriting perspective. He's got two songs on Deja Vu, Deja Vu, one of which was a hit, Helpless. The other one is Country Girl. He does Ohio, of course, as a single. Um, and it's not that much else during their most fertile period. Um, he, of course, does a lot for them as a live act. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the four-way street live record. Um, you know, he gets Crosby, Stills, and Nash to do a 13-minute take on Southern Man, which is certainly not something they would ever would have done otherwise. Um, but you could argue that this band did a lot more for Neil Young than, they, than, than he did for them. Yes, he, he, he throws them a couple songs. He plays on a couple tours. He jumps in and out of the band at his leisure for years, <laughs> if not decades. And in return, they turn him into a household name. 
<laughs> it's really funny because that is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, there's a great Neil Young biography out there called Shaky. It's sort of a semi-official, unofficial how to I, – I just reread it. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's written by uh, Jimmy McDonough. It, you, it's a must-read if you're a real big Neil Young fan because he fully participated in it. And then, of course, being Neil Young, he then, like, tried to have it blocked from publication. And then, of course, being Neil Young, then, like, three years later, he's like, all right, yeah, you can publish it. Never mind. You don't even have to make any changes. I just – just wanted to mess with you. That's what Neil Young does. And that's kind of what he did with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, too. Where you just jump in, jump out. They'd always start to record an album, and then Neil Young would like say, nah, he'd duck out after like, you know, two songs were recorded. And then he'd take the song and put it on his album. Because he's like, well, I wrote it. I guess I could put it on my album. Uh, and it would really, really tick the rest of the guys in the band off. And yet, you know, they they all somehow managed to somehow remain friends. Except uh, I think that David Crosby and Neil Young don't speak anymore for reasons that aren't necessarily worth getting into now. Um, the last thing I think that needs to be said about the uh, CSN, the whole CSN experience, until maybe we get to the next part of our episode, uh, is Ohio. I mean, we're not going to do a Neil Young episode and not talk about Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming, right? This is written right after the Kent State shootings. Uh, you know, and as the story goes, you know, you know, Crosby just, you know, gave Neil the, the paper, the picture, that famous picture of the, the woman on the ground, like, you know, like with her arms up in the air, shrieking in sadness over the dead kid. And, you know, Neil just takes the, the, that paper into the other room and he comes back in like 35 minutes and he has Ohio, which a lot of people argue is the greatest CSNY song of all time. I would maybe the greatest protest song of all time, too. Yeah. I would tend to agree. I'm doing a class in the fall on uh, protest, uh, songs of patriotism and protest. Ooh. And uh, this one will, will feature prominently. That that riff is so killer. I mean, that's just, it's just incredible. And yeah, it is certainly, in my mind, one of the greatest protest songs of all time. I mean, it, it, it's the... The brutality first about the way like the bong, 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 uh, which is pure, 100% Neil Young. got to give credit to the rest of the guys because the harmonies on the at the, that midport mm -hmm. you know got to get down to it soldiers are cutting us down which is pretty hysterical but it's nevertheless like you know, so heartfelt where you know crosby is just shrieking at the end and no how many more how many more why um it, it actually kind of brings off you know the the anger and the pain without seeming ridiculous um and thank god that neil young 
joined CSNY. They go on a tour, a couple of tours in the mid-60s. Then Neil decides, like, hey, actually, I want to do a little time with Crazy Horse. And he does this great run of shows with Crazy Horse touring. Everybody knows this is nowhere, basically. We haven't talked a lot about Neil Young archival releases. He's got a billion of them. This is what I meant when I were talking about like drinking from a fire hose these days. <laughs> but if you get a chance, folks, you should go listen to Live at the Fillmore in 1970. Because I actually am not a huge fan of the way these songs on Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere sound in their original studio versions. But when they take this stuff live out onto the road, it is electrifying. Um, there's just something about getting them up in front of an audience that works. And, of course, they extend them even more. Like Cowgirl in the Sand is like 14 minutes long now as opposed to 10. And you don't get bored for those 14 minutes. Um so it's it's one of those things that's worth checking out. We'll try not to focus too heavily on like all the various concert releases that someone can get if they're into Neil Young. But I wanted to mention that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll say two things about that, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, one is the fact that <clears throat> we talked about Crazy Horse essentially being the blank canvas for, for Neil Young and also about him not wanting to share creative control with other people. One of the few people, we haven't mentioned him yet, one of the few people he ever does uh, cede the spotlight to and cede a little control to is Danny Witten. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Let's go, let's go, let's go downtown. Come on, baby. rhythm guitarist, secondary guitarist in Crazy Horse, he actually lets Danny Witten sing one of his songs, uh, Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown, on that, um, on that disc, uh, or I should say on that show, it would show up later on. Um, in a very a, symbolic way, yeah. Yes, on, a, a, on an official release um, on Tonight's the Night. Um, and then the other thing I would point out is this, um, I'm not sure where we're going to officially put this song, whether it's in the first part or the second part of our, uh, our three-part series, um, but this is the first time you can hear the song Winter Long, God, what a song. Uh, which is, it shows up on Decade. Um, it's recorded in the On the Beach sessions as a studio version, um, but it was played live as early as 1970, and it's just one of the most... It's again, it's beautiful and heavy at the same time. It's just a gorgeous song. I always wondered to myself why the studio recording from 1974 sounds almost exactly like this version. And then I realized the reason for it is because it's almost entirely the same band. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's Billy Talbot and Ralph Molina. Danny Witten is not there anymore. But yeah, I mean, they know how to play this. They've played it for a long time. But yes, it's such a beautiful song. 
And it is one of those – it's strangely optimistic. It's an old one too. You can hear him playing it. You know, In 1968, he'd been fiddling around with it. So he'd, that's one of the things that you'll learn about Neil Young. The deeper you get into him, the more you explore his archives. Sometimes he'll have songs sit around for 20 years, 30 years before yeah. he decides to officially release them. Uh, that's – you know what you can do when you're as prolific a writer as Neil Young is. Sometimes you you don't really see a song going anywhere. You set it aside, and then you come back to it. You know, you know, several years later, and you're like, hey, you know, that was actually really good after all. Um, and so that's what happens with Winter Long. That's what actually is going to happen um, with some of the songs on his next album. And as I said, thank God he joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash because if he hadn't, he'd have never gotten that raised profile that made them, of course, number one chart, you know, hits and made Neil Young something, you know, from an obscure folky with a failed debut album and this very weird, <laughs> unlistenable, like primitivist rock secondary follow-up into the guy who's a member of one of the biggest and most important supergroups in the world. And so everybody was paying attention when After the Gold Rush landed in 1970. Well, I dreamed I saw the knights in armor come and saying something about a queen. There were peasants singing and drummers drumming and the archers split the tree. Was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. And this is a very interesting kind of a hybrid album. You've got Crazy Horse on some of these songs. You've got CSN singing harmonies on some of these songs. On some of these songs, you've just got Neil Young playing an acoustic guitar or sitting at a piano with a French horn behind him. And uh, the other thing I love about the, the sessions from these is that you also have the first time that I think I know on record of a young man who would then go on to become a, a minor success and then a member of the biggest band on the planet in his own way. And that's a little kid, an 18-year-old kid who Neil Young met in Washington, D.C. when he was playing uh, you know, there on one of his little solo tours named Nils Lofgren. And Nils came backstage and was like, I'm so impressed with your stuff. I love your stuff. And Neil was like, oh, hey, play me some songs. And Nils did. And he's like, hey, you know what? That's awesome. Come out and see me if you're in California. <laughs> he did. Comes to the sessions. Neil says, hey, can you play piano? Nils Lofgren has never touched a piano in his life at this point. Okay, Doesn't know how to play the instrument. But he's like, uh, Neil Young is asking me to play on his album. I'm going to say yes. And so he said yes, and he just faked it. I love that. He just pretended to learn how to – he learned how to play piano on the fly because Neil Young asked him to play on the record, and he didn't want to disappoint him and blow his shot. Uh, and, and he mostly just bangs out triads on the quarter notes. Right. 
great. I mean, that's like on, on Southern man, like dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. it's really simple. It's stuff. what I would do if you put me in front of a piano. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it doesn't have a lot of technique to it. He got much better at it. By the time of tonight's the night, he's actually got some real technique and he's got some finesse. But no, he didn't, he didn't know what to do in those sessions, but it still works anyways. And then what you get is after the gold rush. Now, a lot of people would say this is Neil Young's greatest album of all time. There's a lot of albums that people could argue are his best or are up there with his best. But this is one that people fight over. I find it to be technically almost, you know, faultless. I'm just bored with it, sadly, for the most part. I just feel like I've heard all of these songs since I was 16, 17 years old. And so not a lot of them bring me any excitement anymore. And that's like the worst kind of criticism to make about an album because it doesn't say anything about its actual qualities. It doesn't it doesn't reflect in any way upon its, you know, its good points or bad points. It's just me saying that personally I'm tired of it. The, the the title track is like the is like Boston's debut album where I've heard it on classic rock radio so many times growing up that I never need to hear it again. It's just burned into my brain. Um, but it is fascinating that you know we talk about the production. He got he has everybody knows this is nowhere where he finds a production style that really clicks. Sounds it finds a sound that really suits him. And what's he do here? He comes up with yet another sound and production style altogether uh, and a different group of musicians to play it or on all kinds of different musicians. Um, Southern Man and When You Dance are, are still the kind of songs that can that can blow the windows out of your car. But but here we see the first inklings of folky Neil and country rock Neil. Um, and and I, I don't really point to the title track as much as I point to something like Oh, Lonesome Me. Um, this uh, this could have been a Buck Owens song. I mean, it's it's wonderful country music. Um, Neil the, Young famously said that like I recorded that song and everybody I played it for hated it, which is why I decided I had to put it on the album. <laughs> that's 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 all you need to know right there. But I still love her so, and brother, don't you know? I'd welcome her right back here in my arms. There must be some way that I can lose these lonesome blues. Forget about my past. Someone new. Um, 
And then the other one I really like is Don't Let It Bring You Down, um, which is a song that I don't think really neatly fits into any genre. It's, it's sort of completely sui generis. Uh, and here he's really getting, to the, getting into the impressionistic lyrics. You know, Blind man running through the light of the night with an answer in his hand. Come on down to the river of sight and you can really understand. Uh, this is this is lyrically right off Highway 61 revisited. Uh, I mean, hey, don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. Right. What? But you know what? I, I, I've I've had that lyric in my head again since like 1995. So it really is a memorable one. It is. And I just li- I will say I just listened to this uh, a couple days ago on the uh, the 2009 remastered version, and it. There's a huge difference. I mean, the, the, the guitars and the individual parts really pop with headphones on this album since they since he remastered it. That song is incredible. Um, I was in my office the other day, uh, listening, prepping. Usually I have head- headphones on, but this was right at the end of the day and I was packing up, doing a few things. And so we had the speakers up. And uh, one of my students was outside uh, studying and popped her head in. She's she's a big music fan, and she popped her head in. She's like, "What is that?" Oh, that's you know, it's Neil Young. Don't let it bring you down from after the Gold Rush. She's like, "That's amazing," which is essentially my reaction when I heard it for uh, the first time. Prepping See, the kids, for the show. the kids these days are all right. You they, know, they I got some I got things. some hope for this generation. <laughs> she loved it. I love it. That's a fantastic song. It might be my favorite song from this entire era. Uh, I, I just love it. I love those, um, uh, Jeff said, you know, kind of Highway 61, yeah, the, the, the kind of biblical uh, Dylan-esque sort of lines, the old man lying by the side of the road, the blind man walking by the river at night, all of that uh, works. Uh, it's a masterful song. And, and this is one of those times when he really uses his his voice, right? Vocally, it's not quite falsetto, but it's definitely higher than usual in that delivery. And um, th- there's some, there's some uh, not sadness, but almost uh, portending doom in just the way that song sounds, the chords, the way they resonate. Uh, Don't Let It Bring You Down is the high point of this album for me and perhaps the high point of this entire portion of his career. Mine. necessarily say the same thing about the album itself and again i'm the new guy here but i do know the reputation of a lot of these albums and this is perhaps the only one from this era at least where uh, i did not feel that the uh, the product lived up to the reputation i know this is considered a total stone cold classic and as jeff said perhaps his best album and I just didn't hear it and maybe it just needs more spins maybe it's got to grow on me 
I see to all those might be possibilities as the new guy to uh, to a lot of this Neil Young stuff, but uh, don't let it bring you down. It's fantastic. I like Only Love Can Break Your Heart. That's a lovely song, and uh, this three-quarter, you know, kicks, that, that classic Neil Young kick snare uh, beat that sort of clip-clops clip, clop, clip along. I have a friend I've never seen He hides his head inside a dream Someone should call him and see If he can come out Try to lose the gown that he's found But only love can break your heart Try to be sure right from the start Yes, only love can break your heart What if your world should fall apart? I believe in you is a great song that's boy that's a vocalist song i actually know uh robin zander from cheap trick who's not 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 a bad vocalist uh did a version of that for his i believe one and only solo album and uh, vocally it's fine but it's in the early 90s the production is just is not is not good but that's the sort of song that even robin zander again tremendous acrobatic vocalist looked at and said yeah that's one i can take on and Neil does a really nice job, uh, both vocally and that, lyrically. That's a strong song too. But um, but no, I mean this this album just doesn't just did not live up to expectations for me. It's an album where if you try to analyze it on a song by song level, I don't think I can find many criticisms. Oh, Lonesome Me, kind of a pointless cover, but it's fun too. Um, it, it opens and closes with you know those. Uh, there, there are a few kind of minor bits like, you know, Cripple Creek Ferry until the morning comes. But again, they're enjoyable pieces. Um, but then there's songs like Southern Man, which, of course, is one of Neil Young's most famous and popular songs. And we have recounted on this show many times the story of how Neil Young wrote Southern Man and then he wrote Alabama. Uh, both of them are knocking on the Deep South. And <laughs> with, with this Canadian guy who's never spent a day in the Deep South seems to think that Alabama is all about. And then, of course, Slinner Skinner, you know, in response, Ronnie Van Zant wrote, you know, Sweet Home Alabama. But uh, the lyrics are, when you examine them, a little crazy. Like, you know, he's like, I've seen your black man coming around. I swear by, he's talking about like, you know, an interracial relationship. Swear by God, I'm gonna cut him down. And he just starts wailing. I heard screaming and bullwhips cracking. Like, it's the antebellum south all over again. How long? How long? Why? And, you know, the hysteria of the song is both amusing and mildly insulting well, more than mildly <laughs> insulting it's really insulting but uh you know it, because you have that 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 great clomp clomp lofgren piano and then you've got you know neil young just going full-scale neil young in terms of his guitar playing
by the way, something I haven't really even discussed up until this point. Neil Young has a unique electric guitar style. Uh, he, instead of playing, you know, very, you know, fine, he's not like Stephen Stills, who, you know, like, you know, play very bluesy licks and has a lot of like, you know, you know, you know, rock finesse. Neil Young almost plays his guitar like he's swinging a hammer against the wall. It's blunt instrument and he wields it as such and it's emotive and sometimes he'll play the same note for like you know 30 seconds because it's just like how he feels emotionally he's one of those people whose guitar style you will love or you will hate uh and your tendency to love it is probably directly correlated to your tendency to enjoy somebody who plays their guitar as uh, as if it's an emotional extension of themselves uh and the emotions that they mostly have are like you know unspeakable and inchoate anger that they're never really capable of putting into words and the the back end of it is interesting too because he plays to get that sound it's not really through fuzz pedals and all that it's this really really tiny fender amp from like 1952 yeah and when you turn it all the way up it tends to overheat <laughs> so his roadie has to blow this massive fan at the back of it to prevent it from overheating from blowing out yeah it. yeah yeah i mean and then, but there are so many different styles you know scott mentioned i believe in you i really want to spend a little more time dwelling on that that song is one of the most um if you look at those lyrics, it's a really disturbing song. I think people hear it and they just hear the choruses, I believe in you, la, la, la. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice song. It's the opposite of what that song says. It says, now that you made yourself love me, do you think I can change that in a day? How can I place you above me? Am I lying to you when I say that I believe in you? Yikes. <laughs> it's a deeply selfish song. I mean, Neil Young has historically always been a deeply difficult person to work with for any extended period of time. That's why he's always switching up bands and, you know, finding a new producer there, you know, like, you know, you know, ducking out. He once famously left, you know, a Stephen Stills tour in the middle of the tour by saying, hey, isn't it funny how things that start one way tend to end the same way? Eat a peach. Adios, Neil. Uh, and like he's not an easy person to get along with. And he kind of lays that bare in that song. Uh, where he's basically just saying, like, I, I can't put anyone else ahead of me. It is both beautiful and very unsettling, which is why I think it's one of the greatest songs on the record. Coming to you at night, I see my questions. I feel my doubts. Wishing that maybe in a year or two We could laugh and let it all out
you know, when you dance, I can really love, which is just about when you see someone dance, you're filled with lust and love. <laughs> Pretty simple song, but it works. Got Crazy Horse back there just jamming away. Uh, it's an album that you can't really uh, criticize as a whole after the gold rush uh, on, on a technical level on the songs. It's just one of those things where, again, you know, having lived with it my entire life, it doesn't impress me anymore. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have anything left to say about that or, or shall I just uh, get into the place where Neil Young unexpectedly becomes the most famous musician in America. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, what he does after, after the gold rush uh, is he goes on a little solo tour. And he actually got a lot of recordings from this. Another one of those great live records that you people should listen to is something he did in January of 1971, a couple months after the release of the album. He plays in, in his home field, plays in Toronto at Massey Hall. And the name of the record is called Live at Massey Hall, 1971. And it's just a 17-song set, acoustic guitar and piano only. He's alone. Uh, and he sings with such clarity and beauty and precision. Goes through his entire songbook, dating all the way back from Buffalo Springfield to, well, not only to After the Gold Rush, but uh, CSN, but to an album that was about to come up. And in fact, his manager said, you know, you should just take the songs that you've recorded on this tour and from this show and, and release that as your next album. And Neil Young said, nah, 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 nah I'm going to do something else. In retrospect, he says maybe I should have done that. But what he did instead is he he, he went like to Nashville, uh, he went to California, he got an all-star group of his friends. He got James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. He got Kenny Buttry. He got Ben Keith. He got every single country great that he could think of, and he put out a record that you might have heard of called Harvest. about the only number one Neil album of all time. Which includes the only Neil Young number one song of all time as yeah. well in, in Heart of Gold. This, as I mentioned at the front of the show, is the one Neil Young album that I had, uh, that I had, that I had access to, that I, that I listened to. And so, um, you know, in reading a bit about Harvest, I, 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 I've read some pretty, not, not harsh critiques, but certainly some, um, you know, saying, you know, yeah, sure, it's the number one, uh, it's his only number one album with his only number one song, but it's nowhere near his best. And I can understand that, but I still really like listening to Harvest. Um, I think a vast majority of these, of these songs hold up very well. Um, what at least three are on constantly. 
uh, on classic rock radio. So if you've had an introduction to Neil Young in that direction, you know Heart of Gold, clearly. You know uh, Needle in the Damage Done. You know a song like Old Man. Think about Old Man for a second, which I've always liked a whole lot. 24 and so much more. Uh, Written about what the caretaker at a ranch he bought uh, just after he first came into some money. This is, you know, a slow acoustic song with James Taylor playing banjo all over it. Um, Essentially, you know, yearning, saying explicitly, I need someone to love. And yet it stands alongside on many radio stations, you know, Aerosmith, Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, and an old man from Neil Young. Which is to say, that is one monster hook in the chorus. That that is just a huge, uh, just just a hugely melodic chorus. So big that it sticks with you and stays with you. It is uh, popular years after the fact. Again, standing alongside these these very heavy classic rock artists, you will hear "Old Man." Love lost such a cost. Give me things that don't get lost. Like a coin that won't get tossed Rolling home to you It's a great song. I've always loved Old Man. You know, the, the, the rockers on here I like too. I like Alabama, which we had talked about uh, on one of our exclusive content episodes recently. Uh, Are You Ready for the Country? Uh, the Waylon Jennings cover is great from, what, 76? I like this original. It is, you know, the sequencing of Harvest interests me because you go from this very, uh, I don't say buttoned up, but you go from this very pristine in places heart of gold a man needs a maid has of course the 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 uh, orchestra out of two songs here have this orchestra london london symphony orchestra accompaniment to it which sounds a bit out of place especially to me before i was listening for this episode and learned a bit more about the early part of neil young's career out on the weekend is a great track that, that kicks things off but the further you go into harvest the looser it gets, right? The the more uh, unstructured a bit it gets. Uh, a song like uh, Alabama and, and uh, even Are You Ready for the Country, they sound very loose, very ramshackle, almost recorded live in studio. Needle and the Damage Done is a live track that's on the record. So in the sequencing of it, you go from this one v- version of production almost, uh, which again, sounds great. I love the sound on Out on the Weekend. That sounds great. It's a great sounding song. Uh, and you get toward the end of the album, and it gets very, you know, Alabama sounds a whole lot looser than Out of the Weekend. It sounds like it's recorded live. Uh, his guitar tone is so strong on a song like Alabama. Um, the, 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 you know, lyrically, uh, you know, explicitly on Old Man and elsewhere, the, the need for love, the desire for love, uh, questioning whether you want love on, on A Man Needs a Maid, right? Um that, that 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 lyric is just again. I was talking about like I believe in you being unsettling, but of course the man needs a maid. Actually, got him charged with sexism for the line where he says, "I was thinking I maybe I'd get a maid just 
find a place nearby for her to stay, just someone to keep my house clean, fix my meals, and go away. <laughs> but he delivers it with such emotion, though. I know. It's such a beautiful uh, song, too. The, the version of that to hear is on the Massey Hall, where he just plays it solo on the piano, and it is just... It's heartbreaking. You almost you feel for the for the sadness and the longing of this desperately selfish man. I was thinking that maybe I'd get a maid, find a place nearby for her to stay, just someone to keep my house clean, fix my meals, and go away. A So, I, I mean, I guess I understand that, you know, there are a couple songs. The orchestration is just kind of odd on uh, on those uh, those two songs that it appears on. But uh, but overall, I, again, I just, I like listening to Harvest. It's a great album to listen to. Well, um, Jeff, you've been on Stephen Hyden's podcast. Yes, um, I have. He's got this uh, this test called the, the the Five Albums Test, which is how few bands have five albums in a row that you could give five stars to. Um, Neil doesn't get there, uh, but this is certainly his third album in a row, which is almost unimpeachably a five-star album, uh, which, which puts him in select company. And, and, and again... I actually, think, I actually think he gets there easily then. <laughs> that's, if, that's, if, if you think this is a five-star album, unless you count Journey Through the Past, which we'll have to discuss. Well, that's true. It's, uh, yeah, do we, do we throw that away or not? Yeah. Um, All right, continue though. Sorry to interrupt. He, and, and he does it by now fully embracing the singer-songwriter aesthetic. He, he puts himself in the same early 70s company as James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot, Jim Croce, America. But the thing is, he's better than all of them. Uh, and I think that's because the music, ha- it's not just light, soft rock, singer-songwriter stuff. The music still retains a little bit of an edge. Um, it's not just, well, we're going to run away from the 60s by playing a bunch of happy acoustic ditties. Um, this, this disc to me feels, it, below the surface, it feels like it's just loaded down with that 1960s hangover sort of feeling. Um, it's the music of a guy who retreated to his new ranch to reflect on what the hell just happened to him over the past six years. Comes to L.A., starts bands, breaks up bands, tries drugs, has epileptic seizures on stage. Uh, it's all really weighty stuff. Um, even, even the title track, which is a, a pretty light country tune on first listen, the, the more you listen, the more you realize how, how much melancholy there is in it. And, and you already talked about A Man Needs a Maid, but it's downright depressive. You know, there's a shadow running through my days like a beggar going from door to door. My God. Or um, Harvest, the title track, you're right. You know, what is it? You know, did I see you down in the young girl's town with your mother in so much pain? I, I was almost there at the top of the stairs with her screaming in the rain. Yeah. I, I did, I've never been able to put a finger 
on exactly what that lyric is about. But it, it seems like something about like girlhood, womanhood, and maybe motherhood, but also sort of domestic unhappiness. There's just there's something going on there that I've never figured out. Well, I see. And I don't feel bad about this, you know. When um, uh, you know, uh, Dolly Parton uh, did a, a great, beautiful cover of uh, "After the Gold Rush" with uh, Linda Ronstadt and uh, Emmylou Harris, and they mm-hmm. did after they get after the Gold Rush, and they went and they asked Neil like what the lyrics mean, and, and Neil Young said, "I, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never known what the lyrics to that song meant. So if I can't figure out what harvest means, I don't want to feel bad about that." And Scott made a great play, a great point about the sequencing too. That the sequencing here is is really smart. How it gets less and less structured, a little bit more ramshackle, and it even toward the end gets a little heavier. Um, in case he didn't hit you over the head enough with Southern Man, we've got the equally unsubtle <laughs> Alabama, uh, which really gets Ronnie Van Zant's attention if you didn't have it before. Oh God, um, banjos playing in the broken glass, the old folks in white robes. Jeez, it's well, really, it's, it's, it's got it's, maybe my my favorite Neil Young couplet, which is your Cadillac has a wheel in the good. ditch and a wheel on the track. Yeah, that's great. It is. Um, and then he and then he closes it with words, which I, I, I did get to see him play it live once. It's not a song he's done live a lot. Journey through the past, of course, has 16 minutes of them noodling around in the studio with it. Um, I really like that. Uh, that harmonic progression of the piano going going up the scale, uh, and it it sort of crosses the line or it walks the line between a, a a light acoustic song on one hand and a jammy rock song on the other, and it keeps kind of toggling back and forth. Uh, it, it's one of my one of my favorite kind of unsung Neil Young songs. else i'd want to mention is i think out on the weekend is my favorite track on the entire record it's really good i mean it just there's that it the, the guitar solo is one note it's 
in the chorus and that's all you need it's i think it's ben keith playing it it's probably a pedal steel um and again the melancholy on that thing is is just amazing you see the lonely boy out on the weekend he's trying to make it pay he can't relate to joy he tries to speak but he can't even begin to say um it's a you know it is i guess perhaps people can mock it for being like rock star on we but with a guy like Neil Young, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly phony or feigned about it. That's what he gets away with. That's his trick. Because you know, he's a rock star, you know. He smokes all the weed. He he does the drugs and gets drunk and you know has you know you know like four wives and running, you know, and, and, and you know and all that. And yet he seems to be he seems to come by his his melancholy and his afflictions honestly, without making you feel like he's the way you would think about like the eagles moaning and complaining about like oh how hard it is to be successful you know and yet they're always still out there trying to make number ones After this album, Neil Young headed, as his own in his own words, he headed straight for the ditch. And of course, this is how we're gonna end the show. Uh, you get a number one hit album, you get a number one hit single. What's the first thing you do? Why don't you put out a completely unwatchable documentary uh, <laughs> that uh, is still to this day been seen only by like the most hardcore of Neil Young fans, myself among them, and is absolutely terrible in every way? And put out a soundtrack album. Everyone was waiting for the follow up to Harvest Sign. Put out the Journey Through the Past soundtrack album. I don't even consider this a regular Neil album. It's kind of a compilation is what it is. You've got live stuff from the early Buffalo Springfield days to CSNY to those studio rehearsal sound, you know, stuff from like, you know, the later part of the harvest sessions. There's an entire side of the album is just like film excerpts of random people talking. <laughs> the record ends with for whatever reason, let's go away for a while by the Beach Boys, uh, which is a fantastic song. And as Neil Young's favorite Beach Boys song, by the way. Um, but I don't need to hear it on a Neil Young album. This is the one that you don't ever have to listen to. The single best song on it, the only original song on it, is called Soldier. You can find it on Decade. Save your time. Um, then, <laughs> yep. of course, he, what he has to do is uh, tour Harvest. This thing has gone to number one. You know, you got to put together a band. So, well, what does he do? He wants to take the same band that he'd recorded with for the most part. The, the Stray Gators is what he had called them when he had put them together in the studios. A lot of Nashville professionals, Ben Keith and Kenny Butchery in particular. Kenny Butchery was a guy who played on like Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan. So that's how, how like, you know, all you know, rock solid he was. Um, 
And then he also wants to bring back at least one of his friends, who's Danny Witten. And the problem, of course, is that when he brings Danny Witten in to start doing rehearsals for the tour to play these songs, it's immediately apparent that it, he is in no state to play. He's strung out. He is high as a kite on heroin. He can't play his instrument. He doesn't even show up to the rehearsals on time. And then Neil Young has to make an incredibly painful decision, which is to say, you're fired. you got to go. I mean, I, I love you, buddy, but you can't play. You know, you, you can't be in the band if you can't play. And so he gives him like, I don't know, like $200 or something like that. And what happens is a day later, Danny Witten goes back home and he dies of an overdose, a heroin overdose. And uh, it is just absolutely devastating to Neil Young. And of course, it's something that's going to be uh, very influential on the turn that his career takes over the next several years. Beyond that, uh, he also has horrible problems with his band. His band finds out that Kenny Buttry, because Kenny Buttry is like a famous Nashville studio legend, uh, he can make a ton of money just staying at home playing sessions. So he says, well, you got to make it worth my while. You got to give me, you know, X amount of dollars to play on the tour. And then the other guys in the band find out that he's making more than them. And they also go on strike and say, you got to pay us the same amount too. So all of a sudden now Neil's bleeding cash during what was supposed to be his money-making tour. So everything about the time fades away era tour, the doom tour, as it is so-called, has terrible memories for him. And it explains why this album, which he released as a document, a live document of the tour, composed exclusively of new original songs, uh, has never even been reissued on CD once. And when Neil Young released this massive Archives 2 box set, not a single song from it got onto the boxed set. He doesn't ever want to come back to this stuff. He feels scarred by it. Now, I'm going to tell you folks, this is one of Neil Young's two greatest albums of all time. And it is by far the greatest album that we'll be discussing during this episode. That's a paradox for you. I love it, uh, and it's almost certainly my favorite album of this era, of this part one. Uh, perversely, again, taking these songs out live and playing them to a crowd that's expecting the Harvest guy and, and the Harvest songs, uh, when you begin to contemplate all of the emotions and all of the complications that happened on this tour between uh, the death, uh, between the money, uh, between the, uh, the, the tequila and the alcohol. I don't, I mean, I can't. It's not, it's not my work. I'm not the artist. I, I can't fault Neil Young for doing what he wants to do with his own work. But there's no artistic reason to 
hide this away, to uh, to, to not release it on uh, CD, to not include it on the archives. This is fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff. And time fades away, again, because of the fact it's not been very accessible or released in, in digital form, uh, or at least CD form, for, for years and years. You can get it. It's, it's on YouTube Music and, and, and other places. Um, it's not one I had a lot of expectations for going into. And the music on here is just... Uh, you know, th- there are moments... Journey Through the Past and uh, the bridge where it's just Neil Young and, and piano. It's very stark. It's very raw. And then you have songs like uh, You Understands the Sinner, the title track Time Fades Away, which probably is my favorite on the album, where th- the, the tone is just nasty. I mean, from, from all the way around. The vocals I mean, the, are... The entire album begins with the line, 14 junkies, two weeks two week to, to work. work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just think, you know you're in for a rough ride with that. 14 junkies, two weeks to work. One sells diamonds for what they're worth. Down on Payne Street, disappointment burns. Son, don't be home too late. Try to get right by it. And it, and it continues from there. And it, okay, that's the title track. That's Time Fades Away. That's a great song. That, those Barrel House piano fills. Uh, I think what Crosby's doing some harmony. Crosby's here on a, on a few tracks doing harmony vocals. Yeah, him uh, and Nash had to come in because his voice was failing at the yeah. end of the tour. Yeah, and uh, and so Time Fades Away is great. I, I really love L.A. too. A uh, story about the city, of course. Uh, sort of a backhanded compliment. It's uh, uptight. It's the city in the smog. And then, of course, don't you wish you could be here, too? There's this beautiful post-chorus uh, kind of des- set of descending chords with these sharp notes the, the, that go the on The pedal top. steel. It's Ben oh, Keith playing the pedal steel. Beautiful. Wah, wah, wah. It's like a shimmering ray of light in the middle of all that smog. It's just gorgeous. I love that part of the song. Don't Be Denied is one of the more, I guess, autobiographical songs, uh, starkly autobiographical songs that Young would, would write during this era. That last that last uh, stanza, All That Glitters Is In Gold, I know you've heard that story told, that I'm a pauper in a naked disguise, a millionaire through a businessman's eyes. Uh, man, this is so raw, and I've used that word a few times, but it just is. It's raw and, and nasty, 
it's you know, violent at times when you think about the guitar tone. Things are, are sort of just spinning apart uh, in the spotlight on this massive tour. You can feel and sense the pain and unhappiness uh, through the vocals, through the performances, sort of the, the lashing out. And that's not to say that always pain and unhappiness makes for great music, but it does here. These performances are outstanding. Time Fades Away is a great album. Jeff, yeah. please agree. Oh, I do. I do. Um, but I, I, I checked, I name-checked alt-country earlier. And I think if, if you're going to write a book on the country rock and the Laurel Canyon sound, you have to mention Harvest. If you're going to write a book on the origins and the history of, of what would become alt-country, you've got to throw this album in there. Uh, Time Fades Away, Don't Be Denied. This is stuff that w- would be perfectly at home on a on an Uncle Tupelo record, or even you know some of the more melancholy Wilco stuff. Uh, there's there's a there's a line that 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 goes right through all this. Um, Journey through the past. I think this is the definitive version. Uh, having I've heard plenty of solo piano, solo guitar versions of it. I think this is the one that I would go back to. Um, Love in Mind at only a minute 57. Uh, it still manages to communicate an awful lot. Uh, and then, Jeff, as you and I spoke about on email, the flip side of this record, of course, is the Tuscaloosa live release, which came out a couple years ago. And this is, if you want to hear the Harvest stuff played live, this is mostly where you get that, the stuff he was ostensibly touring to promote. Um, so that's sort of the flip side of this record. You had the original stuff on this record that he was playing and then all the harvest stuff um on the tuscaloosa record hard right. gold after the gold rush uh and then a couple a couple previews of songs that would show up in a couple years on tonight's night like new mama look, and, look, out, and look out joe yeah yeah so this is a, it's 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 really a pivotal period and and things are going to go as you said uh to into the ditch really quickly but uh, this is he still has one foot out of the ditch at this point i mean you know there's so many great stories from this tour as well so you know as i mentioned earlier neil's voice was was giving out by the end of it because he'd been you know singing you know he's, he's demanding songs especially when you sing as high as he does uh and so he had you know his friends came in to help him out crosby and nash and they they sang and played and backed him up and they're on a lot of the songs on the actual released record but of course crosby being crosby pissed every single person in neil young's road crew <laughs> off there's this great story it's in shaky you you I, i'm probably not going to tell it the right way but it's so funny there was like in one show like crosby was like jumping up and down on stage and guitar and then he, you know he takes a, a a wrong foot and and he falls down and he like sprains his ankle really badly he's writhing on pain on the ground and in the background somebody's saying well why isn't somebody going out to help him says they're not going out because they're too busy laughing <laughs> everybody hated david crosby but his voice actually really does contribute something to this music this there's songs there that are almost would be unforgivable if they were sung by anybody except Neil Young. Uh, Don't Be Denied comes very close in my mind to Bathos. Uh, it's, you know, th- the whole thing about Neil Young as a singer-songwriter is that it is the singer-songwriter trip. That you know, w- What is Neil singing about in any given moment when he's writing a new song? He's singing about where he is on that day. Mm. And in that moment, you know, he- he's singing about his lunch, frankly, at that point. So Don't Be Denied is purely autobiographic. It's about his – it starts with his dad leaving his mom. Uh, 
you know, when I was a young boy, my mommy said to me, your daddy's leaving home today. I think he's gone to stay. And then, you know, he says, hey, we moved to Winnipeg. Yeah, there's good um, Canadian geography in that song. Exactly. Oh, Canada. We played all night. Um, so this is just Neil Young singing about life as Neil Young. And yet you're right, Scott. It is completely redeemed by the last verse. All that glitters isn't gold because I'm a pauper in a naked disguise and a millionaire through a businessman's eyes. And so like what otherwise could have been a banal refrain in the chorus, don't be denied, you know, go for it, aim for the stars and all that. He's saying, yeah, don't be denied. And I feel like I, suggesting that I've denied myself anyway. Like, yes, I have made money and I've achieved fame and success, but it's all it's all fake. And what is it really worth? And, you know, am I really someone to emulate it all? The last second, the entire meaning of the song gets turned on its head. And that is a brilliant trick. I guess the one song, though, that I must talk about, this is, <laughs> whoa, is it my single favorite Neil Young song of all time, or is it number two? It's, you know, impossible to really pick. But we're talking top five for sure, and maybe higher than that, is the last song on Time Fades Away. And it is a song called Last Dance. And it begins with the most wonderfully downbeat, and demotivational lyric in the history of rock. Wake up! It's a Monday morning! <laughs> That's exactly what you want to hear when you roll out of bed. Somebody's screaming at you. Wake up! It's Monday! No time left to say goodbye. Can't breathe. And the lights are changing. And then again, the chorus is almost like a mockery of an upbeat chorus. You can live your own <laughs> life, making it happen, working on your own time. You can be laid back and laughing, but then it's just, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no.
the cynicism, the darkness of Last Dance is not only due to the lyrics, but due to that completely bludgeoning guitar riff. The and there are versions of it that are unedited. This is actually an edited live version. The unedited ones that you have on bootlegs. It goes into this incredibly delirious rant where like Crosby and Nash and Young are all singing, you know, come on, turn out the lights. Let's have last dance tonight, which is where the title comes from, actually, because the title's nowhere in the actual lyrics of the song. Um, but like the the despair in this song is something like it's like looking into a black mirror or looking into an abyss and so therefore i can understand why it might not be for everyone it's definitely not like cheerful and upbeat like old man take a look at my life well it's uh, like a preview of on the beach when, it's well, or, or tonight's the night the, yeah. The, oh, yeah the transfer from this to tonight's the night is just so clear with that little rant where he goes on and he just sounds like he's drunk like not high but angry and drunk like you wake up in the morning and it's been up for hours and hours and hours and the sun's coming up and the lights on the stove it's monday morning wake up wake up wake up and then he just ends by saying it's time to go to work <laughs> you wake up in the morning a beautiful and complicated and devilishly black song that it, it it is the song when I first heard it first of all I could not believe that I had been denied this song for so long because of course this album is out of print forever and I had to get a bootleg version of it to hear it and then when I heard it I was like this is a major statement it's not a, a positive or an upbeat statement it's, it's a document of a guy at a really dark place in his life all right but it is such an honest one. And again, when I talked in the beginning of the show about how people who complain about Neil Young's voice don't maybe give enough credit to him for how expressive it is, I meet it on a song like this, where like, you know, the snottiness, the mocking, nasalness, it's its nihilism almost in its perfection. Uh, last dance. It, folks, you got to hear this song.
And I just can't believe that Donna Summer made it a hit, you know, a couple of years later. Just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you know, I, I really loved her version of the no, 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 no chorus. Yeah, the song ends literally with him just shrieking and wailing and saying, no, 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 no. And that's all he wants to say. He's just out of words. He just says, no. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I, it's funny to hear me so enthusiastically, cheerfully rhapsodizing about a song of purest despair. But that's well, I'd rather hear him. I'd rather hear him say that than just endlessly repeat, "I got no mashed potatoes," like he do five years later. I no, 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 ain't got no mashed potatoes. But he does have a T-bone, my friend. But he does have a T-bone. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. That 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 is for uh, two episodes in the in the future. Well, we yep. won't get to that now. Does anybody have any final thoughts on this era of Neil? Or shall we wrap it up for now? Uh, the only thing I would say, and maybe we'll talk about this in the next episode, is if you haven't heard the uh, archival release from the CSNY 1974 tour. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that one. Okay. In yeah, that case, just edit, just edit that comment right out. <laughs> yeah, don't even, yeah, don't even worry about it. Folks, CSNY Live 1974, get it. There we are. This is part one. There's two parts to go as we walk through the music and career of Neil Young. And as uh, Jeff said, I think via email, it's just about to get really interesting. So be back with us soon. Uh, this is the part of the episode on which we all three give you the two albums you need to own, the five songs you really, really should hear from this era of Neil Young's career. As always, we turn things over to our guest first, Jeff DeFore, editor-in-chief at National Journal. Jeff, go ahead and give us your two albums and your five songs. Certainly. Um, a lot of people are going to be familiar with a lot of the records we've talked about. Um, so I'm going to steer away from the chalk a little bit um, on the albums and the songs. For the albums, I am going to steer folks toward the uh, live archival release from the Fillmore in 1970, which we've talked about already. You get Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown. You get an early preview of Winter Long. And you get, as Jeff uh, said, some probably superior versions of the old war horses like Cowgirl on the Sand and Down by the River. And I'm also going to go with Time Fades Away um, because it's, uh, it's definitely a disc that not enough people have heard. Uh, but it's such a critical, it's, it's such a critical record uh, to, to bridge the Harvest era and the, um, and the Tonight's the Night era. Five songs. Um, Expecting to Fly will be my entry from the Buffalo Springfield period. I love the orchestration, and I don't say that about everything in this period, but here it just works. Uh, country, speaking of orchestration, uh, Country Girl, uh, the deep track from the CSNY disc, uh, is perfect in every way. Uh, it's one of my favorite Neil Young songs. Uh, the orchestration works well. The backing vocals work well. He's got the right personnel song um off of everybody knows this is nowhere i am gonna go with a curveball and go with running dry i love that sort of um eastern scale and the droning quality of it it's sort of a funeral dirge but it's really really interesting and it breaks up a lot of the the, the rock bombast on that on that record um, I'm going to go with Don't Let It Bring You Down, which we've talked about uh, from it, uh, from after the gold rush. Uh, one of my favorite Neil Young songs of, of, of any period. And then finally, my dark horse from Harvest is Words Between the Lines of Age, uh, which, again, if you can, uh, I would not recommend listening to Journey Through the Past for any reason. 
Uh, but if you can find another version of this live, which he stretches out usually to 11, 12 minutes, uh, he didn't play it live that much, uh, but I would recommend that as well. All right. Uh, I'm a new guy here. Hi. And so I, uh, I, I think inadvertently, or at least not on, not, not purposefully, have, have, have picked a, a pretty good selection that tries to give a view of this entire era. So on the albums, uh, everybody knows this is nowhere and time fades away. Uh, those are the two albums I think I would recommend from this part of Neil Young's career. When it comes to the songs, I'm going to push aside the Buffalo Springfield era and start on the solo disc with The Loner. Excellent tune. Uh, the title track from Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Really love that. Um, and then, um, look, if it's good enough for uh, my student, uh, shout out because I know she listens sometimes, Jane, Don't Let It Bring You Down. On Jeff's list, on my list, I'm... I, might predict it's going to be on other Jeff's list too. We'll see. But it's here on my five. Out on the weekend, the leadoff track from Harvest is so, so good. And uh, the title track from Time Fades Away. And I think that group, again, kind of inadvertently, gives you a nice little selection. Uh, nice uh, nice 20,000 foot view of what was happening during this era. Uh, Jeff, over to you. Oh, God. This is... Oh, I'm a Neil Young fanatic, so this is really hard for me. If I could recommend the entire Buffalo Springfield era collectively, I would be that would be one of my albums. But because Neil's only on some of those songs, I, I guess I can't recommend any of those albums. Uh, I'll start then with Neil Young's debut album, Neil Young, the first one. It's a weird curio of a document. He would never sound anything like this again, um, but I think the songs are really solid and they work very well. And I value it because, again, he would never sound anything like this again. So if you get this, you're going to get a side of him that wasn't really going to be popping up too many times in the future. And the second one is obviously Time Fades Away, uh, which, again, I said, is like it's one of my favorite Neil Young albums of all time. I, 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 that whole Ditch trilogy is basically, you know, peerless um for the five songs i'll pick one from buffalo springfield and i'll say it's it's actually one that neil doesn't sing it's on the way home uh we gave that one to richie to sing uh, and i like their version of it a lot but of course neil would play it as an acoustic uh, uh song usually to open his shows um all throughout his career and it's just a magnificent lyric to a magnificent melody the old laughing lady from the neil young debut album is the next one i'll pick I love the mystery of that song, and I love the fact that you, you know you have to really work hard to parse out that it's it's actually about people with drinking problems. The third one, I'll say, boy, you, you expected me to say, "Don't let it bring you down," and I I had it on my list, but when you said that, I deleted it. So Scott, you you oh, outwitted man. yourself. <laughs> and instead, I'll pick from after the gold rush. I believe in you. Um, I think that is equally as good a song as Don't Let It Bring You Down. And again, it's another one of those songs where the the lyrical meaning can really escape you unless you're paying close attention to it. And it goes from sounding like a very beautiful and uplifting song to a deeply disturbing one. Uh, out on the Weekend. Can't take that one, Scott. You can't steal that one just for yourself. I agree with you. It's the best song on Harvest. It's a beautiful, beautiful guitar performance by Ben Keith. And the something about the the the, the placidity of the pacing of it has always meant a lot to me. It just takes its sweet time. It is never in a hurry to go where it's going, which kind of sort of captures the, the mood of the song very well. And of course, finally, my fifth selection is, I mean, you just heard me talk about it. How could it not be Last Dance? 
Last Dance is one of Neil Young's greatest ever songs. It's one of his most depressing songs. As I said, it's like looking into, you know, looking into the abyss, looking into the darkness. And then there's somebody in that darkness laughing at you and mocking you and making fun of all of your dreams and aspirations. And you have to deal with it. And uh, somehow it feels invigorating every single time when you do deal with it by listening to that song. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, uh, the entirety of Time Fades Away as an album is something that people should just wrestle with. But Last Dance in particular is one of Neil Young's most major songs. Part one of our look at Neil Young. We will continue next time. And we believe our guest will return, assuming we haven't offended him or done anything to scare him off. Editor-in-chief of National Journal, nationaljournal.com. Find him on Twitter at DC DeFore. Jeff DeFore, thanks again for joining us for this part one of Neil Young. No offense taken. <laughs> so we will see him back for part two. Yes. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Jeff uh, we begin to get into a really interesting era of music for part two. Uh, you've Yay, given buy me my... a tequila and welcome to Miami Beach. <laughs> you've given me my instructions for what needs to be done for part two, and I'll begin working on those very shortly. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Check out our Patreon, please. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Help the show stay ad-free, which we are. Support our efforts. Entry level, mid level, that gets the early access and higher audio quality. And then the upper level, exclusive content once a month, remastered episodes, Spotify playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash political beats. Patreon.com slash political beats. We've come to the time where we say thank you to our current Patreon supporters for getting behind us, helping bring you the show. Thank you to Isaac Barkas, Chris McCall, Adam Banker, Richard Tweedy. Kathy Weber, William Gaffey, Thomas Barnes, Jared Patrick, Scott Leonard, Kevin Roth, Matt Fay, and Jeremy Roots, among many others, who support us over at Patreon and help bring this show to life. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. You can also subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to NationalReview.com, click on Podcasts, and find us there. We're also on Facebook. Join the conversation on Twitter as well, at political underscore beats. 
This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.